Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early. And from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, Good to hey, see hey, you, Chris. Chris. We've got a couple of stocks hitting all-time highs. We've got one consumer brand making a couple of bold moves. Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner is our guest this week. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with radio at fool.com, our email address. Question from Brandon in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He writes, if the Fed raises rates, how will that affect the price of stocks, if at all? And James, the Federal Reserve released a statement on Wednesday signaling that it could increase rates in June. And the Dow index promptly shot up about 300 points. Yeah, well, this is an interesting question Brandon asks. Let me first back up. The Fed said they're going to have patience now raising rates, or they've removed the word patience, excuse me, they're going to have less patience, which means probably in the next meeting or two, we're going to see some microscopic hike. I mean, the, the, the secret thing about economics is nobody has any idea what's going on, so everyone just tests and learn in, in small increments. The key point, two key points, three key points, what does this mean at a time when the U.S. dollar is already high relative to just about every other currency? Uh, and also, no other developed country is really paying very much. And then, the, I guess some other point that I forgot, but you know, <laughs> th- this is an unusual time. So, so I think that's why we're seeing an unusual market reaction. And I, I think this is going to be something that's going to play out over a couple of years rather than six months to a year, as we've seen with prior rate hikes. And the fact that we're still, I mean, everyone else is paying nothing. And I think that's why the U.S. still looks so good and perhaps why stocks aren't panicking like they normally would be. Jeff, what do you think? I'll add a few a few more key points. As interest rates affect behavior, of course, and that can affect the stock market. When it costs more to borrow, that means there's less money in circulation, generally speaking, so people may spend less, and that may affect earnings. Companies may borrow less and spend less to grow, and that may affect earnings as well. So the other point is higher interest rates on treasuries and bonds make those a little more attractive relatively speaking, than they currently are compared to stocks. And so, in, in the past, the interesting thing, there's a new study from 1966 to through 2013, where during times of increasing interest rates, stocks gain less than 1% annualized. And the reason for that is- That doesn't sound good. No, it's not good. <laughs> they gained uh, about 12, 13% annualized during times of rates going down. But that said, when, when rates start from a very low level, as they are right now, and very gradually go up, that's when stocks still do all right. Uh, and the reason being is that uh, that suggests the economy is strong because rates are going up, and the economy is getting stronger because rates are growing up slowly over time. So, a- as James said, nobody really knows, but there is good reason to be a bit more defensive on the stock market when rates are going up. Yeah, and I mean, to Jeff's point there, I mean, we are coming off of a very historically low base here. So, with rates this low, and with the fact that they are going to ratchet them up ever so slowly, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's there's still, the stock market is still going to be the place where the best returns are for the foreseeable future. And that's why I don't think we, we're seeing any, any major panic today. But, but with that said, uh, you know, it, it really is, there's a big priority on making sure that you have your money in these quality businesses that you can trust even in downturns. Yeah, because it's earnings growth that will ultimately drive stocks. Yep. 
Starbucks is in the headlines for its new marketing campaign called Race Together. The idea is to encourage customers to talk about race relations in America. But that is not why shares of Starbucks are hitting a new all-time high this week. For the first time in a decade, Starbucks is splitting its stock two-for-one. The company will also begin testing a delivery service later this year in New York City and Seattle. Jason, let's take these one at a time. Your thoughts on the stock split? Yeah, I mean, we, you know perpetually say that stock splits really aren't uh, material and and this is really no different case i mean they're going to split their shares they're fun though they are fun they are fun indeed it creates a lot you of you own a twice lot of as many shares now. And you you own twice <laughs> as many shares but the pizza is still the same size right um but this was certainly something that that Howard Schultz was taking shareholders into consideration when when he thought of this. You know, he said, "Hey, listen, our shareholders get really excited when we split our shares. So, hey, guess what? We're going to split the stock and and you know, be, Consequently, shareholders are excited, and that's just fine. Uh, but it doesn't change the fundamentals of the business. This is still a the same company it was yesterday, and it'll be the same company tomorrow. It is the same company, although I have to say, as a longtime shareholder, the delivery service testing surprises me a little because for so long, Starbucks really tried to establish itself as the so-called third place. You've got your workplace, you've got your home. They want it to be the third place. And if now they're delivering, I'm wondering if that undercuts the third place idea slightly. Perhaps it could, but I don't think the delivery uh, initiative is going to be as widespread, maybe as as some might think it will be. It's they're they're taking this this from two different approaches here. So uh, the one that they're going to pilot in Seattle is actually going to be partnered uh, with Postmates, which is an on-demand delivery company that has a presence in 12 states and in the District of Columbia here. Uh, and so this this again is going to be what they what they test out in Seattle. Uh, the second one is the Green Apron Delivery Service, which is more focused on dense uh, urban areas. Uh, this this is actually going to be something that rolls out first in the Empire State Building in New York City, and, and this is going to involve actually a a Starbucks barista on site in the building. And so it doesn't sound like this is going to be something where they try to leverage existing Starbucks infrastructure. Uh, this this is going to be something entirely different. Now whether this results in a little Starbucks store in the Empire State Building that has sort of a streamlined menu of offerings that remains to be seen, but it's it's certainly much more focused on on sort of that that office building uh, 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 demographic as opposed to something more widespread. Just to ask uh, the obvious question, I mean, a a cup of Starbucks coffee is only what expensive as it is. It's three or four dollars, something like that. Mm. I mean, does it how does it make sense to have somebody deliver that and then? You got to give them a tip, right? I mean, you're not going to give them twenty cents. You got to pay them another three dollars because you came all the way over to your floor seventy-two of the Empire State Building, wherever you're at, right? I mean, I'll, I'll deliver to you, James, for three bucks. <laughs> well, and it it's, it's the old it's the old <laughs> adage, right? Time is money, and so I suppose they're they're striking this uh, initiative out in areas where where you know individuals really value their time down to the minute, where an elevator ride maybe is a bit too much to ask for, and they're willing to spend that little extra for that delivery. But yeah, to your point, James. I, I, we don't necessarily have too much of a problem just moseying down a couple of flights of stairs and walking to the Starbucks across the streets. I'm not sure it would play out uh, in an area like here. Uh, New York City, far more crowded, far more populated, a lot of money flowing out there for sure. So maybe that's a more ideal uh, place to start. And again, I don't think this is something that you would see all over the place. What do we think of this uh, race together initiative that Howard Schultz, the CEO, is uh, has introduced? Because um, in some corners, he's getting credit for good intentions. I mean, he was quoted as saying, "If I, you know, looking at race relations in America, if I ignore this and just keep ringing the register, then I become part of the problem." On the other hand, there are some people saying, "Look, I just want my coffee. I'm not looking to have an in-depth conversation with a barista who I don't know." And it's hard from a business standpoint to see 
any sort of upside here. I would fall on the ladder uh, of what you were just saying there. I don't want to go into a Starbucks and talk about race relations. It's just not my bag. It's not what I'm looking to do. And so, interestingly, yeah, I wonder if this isn't going to play out by people saying, hmm, maybe I don't really want to go to the Starbucks store if it's going to be this sort of awkward silence when when I when I get my coffee and I see that they've written uh, race together on it. Now, with that said, I mean, Schultz is notorious for using his position as a platform to, to reach out to the country and create more awareness regarding uh, you know, certain issues and I admire the the intent here. I think that this is the intentions here are good, but maybe he's just gone a little bit too far with it. You know, perhaps just the ad in the paper is enough or passing out stickers at the store for people to be able to take that conversation further and most importantly elsewhere because yeah, I don't know that you want a bunch of belligerent coffee drinkers, you know, stuck at a Starbucks for two or three hours debating race relations cuz I just don't see that ending well. Yeah, I think I mean they're in the, his heart is in the right place and, and and the cause is good. I don't think any of us would dispute that, but what's just entertainingly bizarre is who he's picked to, to do this. I mean, the baristas are some of the busiest people on earth running around. <laughs> I mean, the only way it could be worse is if you did this with like toll booth operators or emergency medics or someone who just doesn't have time to stop and have a long conversation about this, like a, a thorny issue. It's just, it's almost intriguing to me. Yeah, that's all I was going to add was uh, I think Schultz and company are asking the wrong people to do this. And I think it's, it's a reach for them to ask this of their employees. Mixed third quarter results for Oracle. Revenue for the business software maker was flat, but they raised the dividend 25%. And Jeff, the the cloud business does seem to be growing nicely. Cloud is growing nicely from <clears throat> admittedly a small base, but it's growing sharply. Bookings are up more than 100%. Revenue, which is uh, comes in over, over time on a monthly basis, is up more than 30% on cloud, that is. Overall, Oracle's revenues were flat, but they're up uh, a good 6% when you take out currency. <clears throat> and that's that's a good result. Oracle is, uh, I own shares. We own it in pro. I'm happy to own it. I'm happy to keep owning it. It's one of those stocks that looks reasonably priced because it's climbing this wall of worry. People believe Salesforce and others are going to eat its lunch, and I don't see that happening. Uh, the fourth quarter historically is the biggest quarter for Oracle. Are they in a position where they're good riding into it as they are now, or do they kind of need it to be a bigger hit than usual? No, I think they're in a good position, Chris. They've had some momentum in recent quarters, and uh, I think they're, the market's expectations have come down a little bit, so those are two good coinciding factors. Third quarter profits for FedEx rose 53%, much higher than analysts were expecting. Sounds like a big number to me, James. Why is FedEx stock down this week. You know, Chris, this is one of those stocks that makes me feel like a moron every time I look at the chart. It's just gone up and up and up, you know, and I avoided it years ago. Uh, I read a FedEx plane lands every 90 seconds. That's how busy these guys are. They they had great results at a time when UPS did not. So, so that's great for FedEx. The problem is they, they lowered guidance by a nickel uh, per share guidance. Was somewhere around $2 per share. So nickel's not really that big of a deal, but there was some fuzziness in the future regarding, even though the, the gas prices or fuel prices are dropping, FedEx was still benefiting from a fuel surcharge, which apparently they're not going to be benefiting, benefiting from Excuse me, in the future. So, that's enough to spook Wall Street uh, on a stock that's probably uh, priced in a lot of good news. Coming up, one airline stock taking off and one restaurant stock that's turning things around. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Yes, money in my 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser, James Early, and Jeff Fisher. Just in time for March Madness, Nike stock is hitting a new all-time high. Third quarter profit came in higher than expected. And Jason, I hasten to point out, they're doing that despite some currency headwinds. They are doing that despite some currency headwinds. Chris, I tell you, the big thing here, which was really impressive, was this turnaround in China. You know, they they undertook a rebranding of sorts in China over the past couple of years to to you know get a little bit more in touch with the consumer and take more control of that relationship. Uh, you know, on, on the ground there in China, and uh, it's 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 really paying off. They they saw 17% growth in China this year versus only 7% last year, and so that along with the fact that they saw some strength in Europe as well. Um, you know, this is obviously Obviously, powerhouse brand that's doing a lot of things well, and the direct consumer uh, continues to help them in their uh, quest for margin expansion. Gross margin up 140 basis points, and uh, you look at what these guys have done. I mean, it's a big company closing in on 100 billion dollars. They have a share buyback plan that has really rewarded shareholders since 2010. Share counts down 11 percent. Stock is up over 160 percent during that same uh, time, and I don't see any reason for that to change. It's just a phenomenally huge market opportunity. Uh, when you go all in with sporting goods, equipment, and apparel, and uh, and, and Nike is just really, uh, really, as Ron Gross would say, firing on all cylinders. Shares of American Airlines up more than 10% this week on the news. It will be the newest addition to the S&P 500 index. Starting on Monday, it will replace Allergan, which is the maker of Botox. This seems like kind of a big deal, Jeff. It is a big deal, actually, Chris, and it's a surprise. Um, American Airlines came out of bankruptcy recently. Uh, expectations were it would be added back to the S&P, but not for perhaps another year at least. So this is a surprise how quickly this happened. Why is it a big deal? Because it, it's estimated that it results in about 79 million shares of buying interest from index funds and and funds that track the S&P index. So whenever any company is added to the S&P 500, and Pro Holding Skyworks was Skyworks Solutions was a, a couple of weeks ago as well. So we just we've seen this twice in two of our holdings. The shares run up rapidly on that news in anticipation of all that buying buying power. Long-term studies show that a stock in the S&P 500 has it, it maintains those gains. It may not become a better performer over the long term, but it it does benefit from being in this venerable index. Uh, and it's it's the third airline to join the index after United, or after Southwest and uh, Delta. Delta, thank you. Shares of Darden Restaurants also hitting a new all-time high. Third quarter profits came in higher than expected. Darden is the parent company of the Capitol Grill, Longhorn Steakhouse, and yes, <laughs> Steve Broido's favorite Olive Garden. It's James, kind of a turnaround going on at Olive Garden at two hundred uh, two hundred forty basis points, or two point four percentage point improvement. Uh, Chris, in Olive Garden, mar- Olive Garden margins since last fall, Starboard Value is a hedge fund that basically knocked out the whole board of Darden and replaced it with, with 12 new people. Run by Jeff Smith, by the way, Starboard Value is 42 years old. Our generation, but probably has a lot more money than any of us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they cleaned house and, and, and it's looking good. Comp sales were up 3.6%. Uh, they raised their 2015 outlook and they accelerated their buyback program too. So, activism works sometimes. Uh, before we get to the stocks on our radar, I want to mention once again GoBankingRates.com, which is the online portal for just all kinds of rate information, mortgages, car loans, banks, credit cards, etc. Uh, Motley Fool Money uh, is a finalist on their list of the best financial radio shows. 
shows and podcasts. Uh, you can vote for the winner. Just go to GoBankingRates.com. And like Jeff Fisher's home city of Chicago, you can vote every day for the month of March. <laughs> so um, some good friends of ours, guests we've had on the show before, Clark Howard, Dave Ramsey, uh, Freakonomics. We love those guys. But we're going to vote for us. We'd like it if you would, too. Uh, Daily. <laughs> every day for the every month day. of March. Uh, Jason Moser, what's on your radar this week? Yeah, I'm going to harken back to 2010 where I was uh, digging into Tidewater. And Tidewater is a uh, company that provides offshore vessels and marine support services for uh, oil and natural gas, uh, you know, energy and ex- uh, exploration uh, and production companies. And so, in times like today, where oil prices are in the tank and there's not a lot of exploration going on out there, uh, Tidewater's uh, stock really feels the pinch because they put a lot of these boats in dry dock and they're just not really being used a whole lot. But that means shares today are selling at less than half of book value. And, and I think that you know it's a cyclical one that whenever oil prices do start to come back up, Tidewater will rise with that tide as well. And the ticker? TDW. Steve, question about Tidewater? My question for you is, uh, when are oil prices back at $100? <laughs> a wow. barrel. Where, 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 give <laughs> Easy me a date. question. February 23rd, 2016. Write it down, Steve. James Early, what's in your radar? Going back to Copa Airlines. This is a Panamanian airline, uh, much more actually the most profitable airline in the world by profit margin. It pays its staff 11% of its sales compared to 30% of sales in the U.S. And $500 million of Copa's money was trapped in Venezuela when Nicolas Maduro, the kind of the the madman president who, who changed the words of the Lord's Prayer to Instead of our father to our Chavez, he moved Christmas to, to November 1st, and he, wow. he implemented a Barbie doll price cap of $2.50, so it would be affordable to everybody. Anyway, he decided not to let Copa take out $500 million, so that's depressed the stock price, but they can still use that money for expenses, and they're still a very profitable airline. And the ticker? CPA. Steve? How do I know I can trust these people, James? <laughs> Copa is actually a very respected, it wins many, many awards for best managed airline in, in the Americas, in Central America, and South America. It, you, can, you can Google it or read my write-up if you want more. Jeff? There's something in the air today. It's United Continental, UAL. It's the next airline that is expected to be added to the S&P 500, likely sometime this year. Now, with all the airlines merging, it's hard to keep track of who is who, so it's fun to look at them now and see how their profits are growing. Steve? Do you fly United, Jeff? I prefer Southwest, but I'll fly what I need to. Steve, three stocks. You got one you like there? I'm going Copa all yeah. the way. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't have trust issues, apparently. No, no, I'm going Copa. <laughs> I'm going safe airline. Copa Cabana. Let's right. do it. Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, James Early. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Up next, we will talk stocks, CEOs, a little college basketball with Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Tom Gardner is the co-founder, co-chairman of the board, and CEO here at the Motley Fool and he joins me now in studio. Thanks for being here. Of course, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, there are individual companies and stocks I want to ask you about, but let's start with the market in general. And it seems like the last time you were in the studio, I probably started with this question, but the market is higher than it was a year ago. When you look at the market right now, what do you see in terms of valuation? Because as the market continues to go go up, we're hearing the drumbeat get a little bit louder. This is this is bubble territory. We're due for a correction. What do you think? 
Well, the first thing I always do is I'm looking at individual companies. So I'm just looking one company after another and trying to see if I find something that looks like a great investment for the long term, for five years or more. And when the market's gotten beaten up, you look across the marketplace and there are a lot of companies that look cheap. And when the market's done as well as it has over the last five years, it's harder and harder to find businesses. And when I run the numbers, I like to find a company that I think is going to generate 15% annualized returns. And I'm finding a lot that look like eh, 11%, 12%, 9%. And so it's it's a more richly valued market, but it starts company by company for me. Recently in Austin, the South by Southwest event was going on. A few of our analysts were down there. and uh, I didn't get invited to that. You did not? No. Wow. No. Some, yeah. <laughs> some of the people yeah. who work for you went. Yeah. Gosh, next time we'll have to <laughs> swing an invitation for you. Um, one of the speakers was Bill Gurley, uh, the venture mm-hmm. capitalist uh, from Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, his firm is behind uh, some of the hottest private companies like Uber and Snapchat. Uh, he said a couple of interesting things that I wanted to get your take on. One was he said, and this is someone who has decades of experience in Silicon Valley, he said right now, the way he sees it, there is a complete absence of fear in Silicon Valley. Those are his words, complete absence of fear in terms of the investments that are going on, in terms of the general attitude. I hear that, and as an investor, that makes me a little nervous. Well, it definitely seems to be a bubble in the private market, and you look at the technology zone, the area of innovation and disruption. And there's a lot of exciting, there are a lot, there are many exciting things happening, but I do have that same feeling that um, the valuations are becoming more extreme. The enthusiasm for the company is growing. And I, I watch around me, there's a, I watch investors around me that are more value oriented and they, they start capitulating. They're like, oh gosh, you know, why have I run valuations on companies all these years? I should have just gone with something that looked like, you know, a sky shot. I just I should have just gone with the the big dream company and let it ride. And you know, there's a lot of truth to that in investing for the long term, but when I see the 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 deeper value investors starting to say that now, that's you know, that's a qualitative sign for me. Has has that been a change in your investing strategy because when I think back maybe 20 years ago, you weren't necessarily a strict valuation person, but you were, as an investor, someone who was more focused on the cash is king approach, the large, stable, revenue generating, repeat purchase businesses. Have you moved away from that? Um, if I've moved away from that, it's it's to having a greater affection for small companies. Um, when I ran Hidden Gems at the Motley Fool, um, you know, you just look at the data and. If you want great long-term investments, you want small-cap growth companies. People think you want small-cap value companies, by the way, but the data is really—I don't think it's—I don't think it's a good scientific look at the data. Um, the data of small-cap value—you have to remember those studies are rebalancing those portfolios every year. And when a company is no longer a small-cap, you don't get credit for it. So if you get a great small-cap value, which which my father calls for these types of businesses, duck in the water analysis. Like you know, it's a duck. You know it goes in the air, you know it's coming back down to the water. Then it may go underwater, and you know it's going to go up in the air at some point, and it's going to come back down to the water. That's not what Amazon did. That's not what Netflix did. That's not what Middleby did. That's not what great, great growth companies do. And so, small cap growth is the best place for long-term investors, but the valuations are richer, and so you either have to accept that you're going to take some hits here along the way, and it's going to be more volatile, and you're just going to have to lengthen your holding period, or you keep some cash on the sidelines. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Tom Gardner, CEO at The Motley Fool, also the lead advisor on our Motley Fool One service. You mentioned the Everlasting Portfolio. Let's 
talk about some of the companies that are in it and a couple that are not in it. And uh, let's stick with Facebook. It's the single largest holding that you have in the portfolio right now. It's about 10% of the portfolio. And against the backdrop of a market that's gone up around 35% over the last two years, this is a stock up more than 200%. It's had an amazing run. Is it getting pricey, or do you think this is a buy right now? I still think it's fine to buy Facebook at this price. I think you'll beat the market. I think you'll get returns um, in the range of 15% a year over the next five years. I think the only problem that Facebook is really going to run into is the same sort of problems that I think Google will run into, is beginning to run into a little bit in Europe, which is, at a certain point, you reach a size and scope, and um, people begin to poke around with whether or not your pricing is overly competitive, is, is anti-competitive. And so, the law of large numbers starts to work against you. There, There's a wonderful study online, Too Big to Succeed. Um, it hasn't happened to Apple so far, um, but if you look back 15 years and you see Microsoft, Intel, and Cisco, and they were just automatic winners. I mean, those were the awesome companies of 2000 and the late 1990s, and they ended up being pretty poor investments over the next 15 years. So I think you have to be aware that that's definitely possible for these companies. But for me, where Facebook is today, I still think it has more than a double over the next five years. I just think it's so incredibly profitable. It's got a young founder in 20 years, as I've said many times. Mark Zuckerberg will be Jeff Bezos's age. So you've got 20 years of somebody totally dedicated who's obsessed with Facebook and the technology and the possibility. And I just think there are so many great things that line up for uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook that I'm, I'm happy to have it as a 10% position in the portfolio. It's been a great stock for us. If you think back 15 years and the United States government uh, looking into Microsoft being the behemoth that it was at that time and anti potential anti-competitive practices, do you think if Bill Gates had access to a time machine, he could go back in time? Do you think he breaks up the company? I think if if you let him go far enough back, then right before we began the um, taping, we were talking about the I Hate Christian Leitner program on ESPN, and we're both Hoops fans, um, both going to enjoy March Madness. I think that Bill Gates was Christian Leitner-like. Actually, he was probably more Leitner than Leitner, because people think Leitner went to some high-end nice school and he had a tailwind behind him and everything he did, but that's not true of his background at all. But it actually is true of Bill Gates' background. I mean, he went to wonderful schools. It's true of my background, my brother's background. We went to awesome schools. We got we, we were incredibly fortunate. But Gates' per, the perception of Gates in the in the nineteen nineties was cutthroat, um uh I mean, just it it wasn't a positive perception. And I think what Google has learned and I think successful, but Cutthroat. Yeah, I mean Darth Vader, like possibly, <laughs> and so I think that the larger you get, the more you need to emphasize how are we going to grow the love, how are we going to make people love what we're doing here. So I think it would, that would have been a first step that he took, and then I think at a certain point, yeah, I mean if if you look at the constraints that Justice Department can put on you, you might as well break your company up in the way that you want to break it up. I do think Microsoft, and I said it on Cudlow. On Cudlow and Kramer, I think it was in like 2002, I said, I think Microsoft should voluntarily break themselves up. I still think they should today. I think they'd be a stronger company with entrepreneurial units than one giant business trying to figure out how to navigate a new world. Another stock that's done well in the everlasting portfolio is Chipotle. Uh, I am a shareholder as well. And Congratulations. Thank you. What's your cost basis, if you can remember, ballpark? Uh, somewhere in the low 300s. So it's, it's done well. 
So, um, yeah. And yet, when I look at the business and how it is being run by the co-CEOs, uh, Monty Moran and Stephen Ells, uh, certainly the way they handled the recent uh, incident they had with pork supply, and they just took... Uh, I look at an incredibly well-run business, and it has been that way for years. And so, anytime I see a company like that, my mind goes to, okay, where is the vulnerability? And recently, it appears that the only point of vulnerability that I can see for Chipotle is the attention that Monty Marin and Stephen Ells are getting for their compensation. They are incredibly well compensated, and you can argue that, hey, the stock has done really well. I'm just wondering, when you see stories like that, do you, do you view that as a distraction? Because I don't view it as meaningfully uh, undercutting the business at this point, but it also seems like something that needs to be addressed in some way. I'm not sure how, hmm. but it does seem, at a minimum, like a distraction for them. I think what has to happen is that it's not it's it's not likely to happen. But I think what would be beautiful is if is if each case were treated as its own individual case. So and there were fewer feeling of like compensation analysis and comparisons and all the rest because that what that does is that then moves toward normalcy and basically there's a range that you can be in. There's a wonderful book coming out by Laszlo Bach, um, who's the head of the people team at um, Google, and one of the chapters of the book is entitled "Pay Unfairly," and and what Laszlo and Google have created at their company is, hey, if you excel and you're passionate about what you're doing and you're creating tremendous value and there's a record, there's a performance track record and it's very evident that you're you're an all-star, Google will pay you unfairly. You could be a developer with the same job description on the same team as another developer and you're making 15 times more than the other person. The other person's making $175,000 and you're getting paid $2 million. You know what? That's exactly what happens on professional sports teams. So, and th- those are such highly competitive atmospheres, those sports sports teams. And they know, I mean, the marketplace is very pure and clear in those situations. And so the same should be happening for public market CEOs. What happens is they all get lumped together and everyone's like, oh, CEO, executive compensation is completely. And you know what? In a lot of cases it is. But when you have an outlier that's created an incredible business that's winning for all of its stakeholders, the default setting should be to overcompensate the winners, to pay unfairly in favor of them. So, you know, my vote as a shareholder is in support of the executive packages going to the companies that I see that are serving all their stakeholders in such a delighting way and so successfully. And so, in the case of Chipotle, I, I would be voting very strongly yes in support of comping them in the way that uh, the company is proposed. Let's stick with the food industry. This is not a stock in the everlasting portfolio. It's only recently become public, and that's Shake Shack. Uh, came up on last week's show. They recently reported their first quarterly report as a public company. What do you think of this company? It's only got about 65 locations. Obviously, the growth opportunity is there in theory, and yet I'm lacking for things in my life, but options on where to get a really good burger is not one of them. It's interesting. I feel like hedging my answer, but I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to say Shake Shack's going to be a winner. I think it's got a great brand. I think the concept is very well defined. Um, I've gotten to know Danny Meyer. Um, He's an awesome restaurateur. He's an awesome person. I would recommend reading his book, Setting the Table, for anybody who's interested in either the restaurant business or just business and entrepreneurship in general. It's a fantastic book. Um, I think that the financial story is solid um, for Shake Shack. I'm not personally that excited about it. It's the small component of it, international licenses and trying to get 
Shake Shack in Abu Dhabi, et cetera. Like I, I, I'm, I'm much more like, hey, just, just win the U.S. Just keep winning the U.S. Win the market that you're in. Win the region that you're in. Then, then broaden to another region, and then win the country that you're in, and and then then worry about elsewhere. So some of that stuff isn't isn't um, very pleasing to me. But um, Danny Meyer owns 21% of the business, and um, I think that it's replicatable, and I think it'll be successful. Do I think it'll be an unbelievable winner? I don't think it'll be an unbelievable winner, but I think it's going to be a market beater. Coming up, more with Tom Gardner. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill talking with Motley Fool CEO Tom Gardner. Warren Buffett has said that he prefers businesses over leadership. Um, I believe the quote is... Uh, Who's I tr- that, by the way? Warren Buffett, Midwest okay. guy. Okay, yeah. Great sense of humor. Uh, the quote from Buffett, I try to buy stock in businesses that are so wonderful that an idiot can run them, because sooner or later one will. Elon Musk is not an idiot, um, but it does raise the question, at some point in the future, if he's no longer running Tesla Motors... Is that still a stock you want to own? There are a couple Buffett quotes that I that I that aren't my favorites. That's, That's one, one of them. <laughs> yeah. Another one is the rule number one: don't lose money. Rule number two: don't forget rule number one. I mean, if you took that approach, of course, you know, I'm sure that there's probably some context around that quote from Buffett that that makes you go, yeah, okay, got it, I agree. But you know, if you take that approach to the venture capital business, you're done. I mean, if you if you never want to lose money on any investment, you're you're never going to find the great investments in in the private markets as a growth investor. So that one doesn't have broad enough application for me to be that relevant. And the, the other one that doesn't is the monkey CEO comment. I like it; it's funny, it's colorful, but I hate the idea of being invested in any company that has a, a an idiot at the at the helm of that business. There are too many things that can go wrong today for a company um, to to have somebody who's um, Really, really incredibly incapable. So Tesla, um, you know, the, where you can say if we if we do parse that back, if we do work back to that quote and where it where it could be true, it's a, a highly organized, structured business. I I think Costco right now is like a machine. By the way, I love their founder and CEO Jim Singal. I love Greg Jelinek, their present CEO. I don't think either of them are monkeys, but I think they've got a system, a replicatable system. So you could get somebody more monkey-like in that, and the machine would continue to run. Um, Tesla, though, demands a tremendous amount of creative genius and will. And I mean, there there have been a lot of unexpected turns for Tesla already. And if you don't have a founder who's completely bought in with a high, large stake and is driven and passionate at the higher purpose level and the desire to innovate, you're going to end up with that business falling apart. I would not want to be an investor in Tesla unless Elon Musk is the CEO. Or there's a succession plan where the other person who's going to become CEO is as impressive or ideally more impressive than Elon Musk, which would be very hard to do. The NCAA college basketball tournament is underway. It's actually underway as we're taping this, so we'll, we'll wrap up soon so you and I can get to watching some games. But outside of the NFL playoffs, this is the most expensive sporting event 
for television advertising. The average 30-second spot's going for about $1.5 million. Mm. And one company that is investing heavily in TV advertising for the college basketball tournament is another company in the Everlasting Portfolio, and that's Buffalo Wild Wings. Mm. You know this company well. You've sat down with Sally Smith, the longtime CEO. Do you like this investment they're making? It's been a huge, huge multi-bagger for us at The Motley Fool. And we've held it all the way up from I think 2004 when we first bought it. When I first saw on Buffalo Wild, uh, in Buffalo Wild Wings, you can see in Shake Shack too. You rarely find restaurants that are growing early on with no debt. They're usually using leverage and doing a lot of franchising. And in the case of Buffalo Wild Wings, they do franchise, but they were debt free and they were growing. And it was a beautiful business because they really dominated that niche, which is better than Shake Shack, which has competition. Buffalo Wild Wings, they were competing against small local sports bars, number one. And then number two, listed it and like, people were like, Hooters, Hooters is going to crush Buffalo Wild Wings. I was like, no, no, no. These are completely different concepts. And uh, so I think that what they have done from an advertising perspective, once I saw Buffalo Wild Wings showing up on ESPN as an advertiser, I was like, oh, this is so sweet. Because there's really nobody else that's... Now Dave & Buster's is coming out saying, we're a great sports bar. Come down and play some games and video games and watch watch the NCAA hoops with us. I, I just don't think it works anywhere near as well as Buffalo Wild Wings' concept. So yeah, I support that advertising spend. Also, I think Buffalo Wild Wings has done a great job creatively with their ads. Who's your pick to win the tournament? I refuse to pick Kentucky. <laughs> I refuse to pick Kentucky. I don't. I, I. I. do have a taint on coaches who have prior violations. I either want. I mean, the reality is, I wouldn't actually mind Calipari. Calipari could represent what I really believe, which is I believe the players should be paid. And I know they get scholarships, and I know that that's very valuable. Um, many of them are then sort of. Uh, there are certainly many situations where players are are pushed a- along to be hoops players on campus and not really to take their education that seriously. But leaving that aside, they're bringing so much money into the university and so much prestige, reputational value beyond the just capital that's coming in. I think they should be paid. So in a way, you know, Calipari has been kind of closer to that capitalistic version. But since he hasn't, since he's run into some rules problems, I refuse to pick Kentucky, even though they have the biggest margin. Um, you know, statistically, they have the widest highest probability of winning that any team has come to the NCAA tournament in many years. So I picked Arizona. He's the co-founder, co-chairman of the board, and CEO of the Motley Fool. Chris, who do you have winning it? Also a big college hoops fan. 20 years ago, I filled out my last bracket. I enjoyed the tournament way too much. Uh I love that. If I'm not involved in a bracket, I just want... So you know what? Let's wrap this up. You're just a fan. You're just a fan. Just a fan. But but give us the inside secret, though. (laughs) Come on. Who do you got? Um, you know Buffalo. I'm, I'm Buffalo, go, I'm I love Buffalo. it. Bobby Hurley. If it's gonna, a great story. If you're going to go for a Cinderella, go for a Cinderella. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. For more on Tom Gardner's service, you can go to radio.fool.com/one. O N E. That's radio.fool.com/one. That's going to do it for this week's radio show. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill, and we'll see you next week.